Hello and welcome to the London School of Theology podcast. You are listening to our weekly chapel service. Today's sermon will be delivered by guest speaker. London School of Theology. Forming disciples. Resourcing churches. Impacting society. It's so great to be here this morning. It's a bit like coming home. Um, if your home, you know, happened to be a university that you left a decade ago. But um, it's, there's something about this place that kind of lives in my story. Um, and thank you, Alison, for the <laughs> kindest book plug I think I've ever had in my life. Um, so I'm just going to leave that there. Um, but since I've left, I've, I've worked in and around this idea of what does the Bible have to say about mental health? And and perhaps more specifically, what does the Bible have to say about mental illness? Um, And probably the first thing to say that I discovered quite quickly when writing my third year project was that the Bible doesn't use the phrase mental health, um, which I didn't find particularly helpful. Um, But the concept is ripped throughout scripture from Genesis to Revelation. The concept of shalom, of well-being, of God with us in a way that somehow, and though we wish it did, doesn't take away our suffering, but joins us in it. And probably one of the most asked questions about my job is not about my job title, which is really long, but quite self-explanatory, Mental Health Friendly Church Project Manager, Um, but this idea of kintsugi, Because actually, it's this message that I I probably only heard of about five years ago, um, but one that actually I've seen reflected in my story and in my life um, throughout. It's one of beauty from brokenness. And it's one that I have needed to hear countless times in the 17 plus years I've lived with mental illness. But I've, I've skipped ahead and we'll probably get back to that in a bit. Because kintsugi essentially is about pottery. Um, don't lose me if you're not interested in pottery. But I don't know about you, but when something gets broken in my house, the main way we fix it is either with super glue or with chucking it in the bin. Usually the latter, because we have a four-year-old who is quite strong. Um, but the Japanese art of kintsugi is about repairing broken things um, with glue that includes gold resin. So it makes things that were destroyed even more beautiful than they had been. Prime example was my mummy mug, which my husband managed to break within approximately six months of giving it to me um, by pulling the handle off, which I'm still not quite sure how he did it. Um, but we fixed that with superglue. Um, I'm kind of wishing we had kintsugi it, but I hadn't heard of it at the time. Um, but what happens with kintsugi is the broken thing, the broken repaired thing, is far more beautiful than the thing was originally. It's a story about actually not going for the quickest fix. And we like the quick fix, don't we? We want it in our lives, we want it in our our own stories. Because it's hard admitting that we are broken. It's even harder letting other people see our brokenness. Whether they're physical, the scars that are physical that might tell of a journey like mine of self-harm, or ones that are marked into our hearts of loss and grief and betrayal. But what I find most astounding is in the passages 
we have of Jesus after the resurrection is that the scars weren't airbrushed. They remained as a reminder for all he had been through. Our gospel is a story of scars, of beauty from brokenness. And yet all too often, we bring our Sunday best to church rather than our honest best. Walter Brueggemann, one of my um, favourite theologians, talks about the fact that the church should be the most honest place in town, if not necessarily the happiest. And it's through this that um, the founder of Kintsugi, Patrick, saw this happening again and again as he was working um, for, a bigger ch- for another charity called um, XLP, which does um, youth work in London. And he saw again and again the damage that mental illness and social isolation was doing. So he and his wife, Dan, um, felt called to, to move away from XLP and to start Kintsugi Hope. It's a feeling I know all too well, that that thing where you step away from this thing that somehow God has given you to hold, in my case with Think Twice, and step into something new. But Kintsugi Hope is almost about change. It's about seeing the change that happens when we are broken and when God gets involved. And at the heart of Kintsugi Hope is this idea that we want to see a world where mental and emotional health is understood and accepted with safe and supportive communities for everyone to grow and flourish. And out of this vision came that our wellbeing groups, which seek to be a place of belonging, where people can explore um, issues like shame and honesty and depression and anxiety and healthy relationships and loss when we have this kind of wealth of resources that means actually people in their churches can lead it and talk about the stuff that we don't normally get to talk about in church. We want to encourage people to help to manage their emotions, that actually they don't just have to sit with their grief and their anger, but they can process it in ways that are healthy, but also have support from, from, community, from the community and, and from kind of medical care if needed. We want to see a world where actually no one is ashamed of their struggle because they have an understanding that God loves them, regardless of what they've been through. And so we had all of our groups ready to start and then COVID hit, you know, that really fun time in everyone's lives. And we had to pivot everything online and thought, I think Patrick and Diane thought, well, this is it, this, this fledging project that is just not going to get off the ground. But what happened instead was that it grew. Um, and in February 2020, and this was the kind of number of partner churches and organisations we had. And then in July of last year, this is how many. Because actually it hit a nerve. This understanding that mental health is something that everybody has. Mental illness is something that one in four have. But mental health is something that everybody has. And I'm going to just show a quick film um, about our wellbeing groups.
And if you would like to know more, there's some um, literature and pamphlets and stuff at the back. But actually, I don't personally work with the wellbeing groups. My job is mental health friendly church project manager, as I've said, ridiculously long, anyway. But it came about because in late 2020, there was a call um, of a number of kind of Christian leaders. I was there um, as part of Think Twice. And somebody said, it's great that there are safe and supportive spaces in these groups. But what happens when the church isn't a safe and supportive space? And we kind of all sat back and was like, ah, there's the problem. Because church, our church that has the greatest opportunity to be a community of healing has somehow got it a bit wrong when it comes to mental and emotional health. And we believe that actually we have to go back to the Bible, back to what it says about mental health, about shalom, about what it says to people who are on the outsides of society. Because once upon a time, the church was actually at the forefront of mental health care. The oldest mental health hospital in the world is named after the birthplace of Christ, the Bethlehem Royal. And so we began to dream about what a mental health-friendly church project would look like. And as I kind of started to think about it, I was drawn again and again to the story of the friends digging through a roof to lower the paralysed man to Jesus. Because actually that's kind of what I see this job, this project is. It's digging through the layers of stigma and of, frankly, quite dodgy, bad theology. um, And trying to remember that actually the church is meant to be a sanctuary for those who are struggling. And then actually it's not us who does the healing, it's Jesus. It's our job to dig through, well, the roof in this case to get people to Jesus. And so um, to start off, we wanted to survey the landscape. We wanted to know what we were facing. And so we, in, uh, with Theos, we interviewed a 1,000 regular churchgoers um, and about 20 church leaders and asked them their, their attitudes towards mental and emotional health. And as we were coming into it, we had this real sense that actually, as the late Steve Austin wrote, the journey of healing, whether for individuals or for whole church communities, often starts with a reckoning, an honest assessment of the way things really are, not the way we wish they were. We see it in scripture, don't we? That before renewal can begin, we have to face the facts. Nehemiah wept for months before he began the work of rebuilding. And when we did this research, as we surveyed the landscape, we came up with these, we saw these three key priorities. The first was that we had to name our position on mental health. The church has had to name its position on a lot of things, hasn't it? Whether it be from the abolition of slave trade to Black Lives Matter. Actually, we now need to be saying that mental illness is real, that Christians aren't immune, but there is hope. And so, and one of the, We need to be doing this by preaching about mental health in our churches. We don't even need to do special services on it. We just need to connect with the emotions of the people that we're preaching on. Whether it be Elijah saying, take my life, Lord, I've had enough. We don't need to diagnose him with depression. We just need to recognise that he was struggling and he brought it to God. And God met him in it. The second is the need for training. 
probably one of the most worrying things to come out of um, the research that um, 90 percent of church leaders we interviewed had never had any training in mental health at all um, and that's one of the reasons that myths have flourished so well we think and and so we have developed um, mental health friendly church training and we're working to, to, to try and change that not so that everyone around us is able to diagnose mental health illnesses because that's not our job but that we might be able to notice someone struggling and encourage them to get help and then lastly it's this ministry of gentle presence to those who's struggling it's a phrase that came out um, of the research of, of the interviews particularly with church leaders and it's that we're not meant to fix people. That's Jesus' job. We're meant to walk alongside people for the long road, even when it's really hard and really inconvenient. It's probably one of the best lessons I learned here, actually. To walk alongside people, even when it hurts, because we're not doing it in our power, but in Jesus's. And as one person put it, it is only by understanding better that the church can love better. The question, I guess, is how on earth do we do this? And part of the answer, I think, is the realisation and recognition that we are, all of us, fragile. Mm -hmm. And in that fragility, God moves. And I'm going to read now um, from 2 Corinthians. Somewhere. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 1 to 12. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are it is veiled to those of us who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of God, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this is all surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are also being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. We're fragile. And some 14 years ago, I arrived at LST with two carfuls of belongings because packing light is not something I believe in, plainly, um, and what felt like the last dregs of my hope. I was fragile in every sense of the word. 
I had longed to come to LST. You know how lots of kind of teenagers want to um, be pop stars or like on YouTube? I, I wanted to come to LST. Don't judge. Um, <clears throat> I set my heart on this because I started Googling Bible colleges when I was 14. Um, and after coming to a summer school when I was about 17, I was, to put it mildly, a little keen. The thought of this place sustained me through doing GCSEs and A-levels because I knew what I had to do to get here. I wasn't entirely sure what life would come next, but I knew I had to get to LST. And I arrived with this strange mix of, of enthusiasm for what might be possible and the despair that I had grown accustomed to, living with a mental illness that had, had threatened my life more times than I cared to count. The weird thing is, it's because of this mental illness that I do the job I do. My plan was to be a missionary in Rwanda and then a Baptist minister. I've done neither of those things. <clears throat> what I do instead is write and talk about where God is in the dark and about the role that the church has to play in mental health care. I get that verse through God's mercy that we have this ministry. And I think Paul is pointing here to the fact that he has his job, not because of his own excellence, but because he'd once been the persecutor of the gospel he now preaches. He himself had been, quite literally, blinded by the light he could not bear to see. He writes later, doesn't he, of the thorn in the flesh that won't go away, that reminds him of whose power he preaches in. And as theologian Paula Gooder writes, Paul learned to live with his frailty and even to recognise that it was because of this frailty that the light of Christ could shine through him and that Christ's power was made perfect in weakness. In a world of celebrity and shining lights, Paul's preaching offers us another way to share the word of God. One not resting on our power or our personality but our weakness, so that God's power can shine all the brighter. Paul's ministry was not an easy ride. It wasn't technically a show of great outward success. Paul was writing here to a church in trouble, a church he'd started in that wealthy, largely Gentile um, city of Corinth. And he was writing in the wake of yet another painful visit with them. The Corinthians were kind of caught up in telling everybody how spiritual they were. The gifts they had. And yet they completely missed the point that they weren't meant to be celebrating in the gifts, but in the one who gave them. It's something we can so easily get caught up in, isn't it? And all too often it comes from a good place. We want to share what God has done in us and through us, how he's changed our lives. But sometimes we can preach our own gospel and ignore our frailty, preach our own truth instead of the truth. And the truth is that we preach Christ crucified. In the liturgical year, we're still in um, the period of Eastertide, which will end with Pentecost. And in this season, we see the priorities and passions of Jesus, the risen Jesus. 
He's seen first through the tears of a woman who, let's remember, couldn't even give testimony to the fact that he'd risen from the dead. He allows his doubters to touch his scars. And he comforts strangers. Jesus is the treasure we preach. And he's the treasure who comes along us when we are broken and when we are rejected. He forgives us when we abandon him, when we tell him that it's just too hard. And he promises to be with us always to the very end of the age. Paul is reminding us that we are fragile when he tells us that we have treasure in jars of clay. I'd always imagine that they were like thick jars, right? Like thick pottery jars. But these were poor quality jars that were made, that had been used as kind of oil lamps, we think. Fragile enough to let the light out. The jars couldn't emit light on their own. They had to be filled with oil. They had to be filled, and don't we too? For some of you here, actually, it's not news that you are fragile. You feel it in every cell in your body, in every wave of exhaustion, in your doubts, in your exhausted mind, in your dissertation adults' minds. But there is good news for you today, because Scripture doesn't shy away from the hard realities of life. And actually, I don't think I could have a faith that didn't face the hard realities of life. And it says it, doesn't it? We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Life is hard. We are fragile. But we are not alone. It is in many ways the story of Kintsugi, that honesty must come over silence and that brokenness never has the last word. We, like Paul, like the Corinthian church, are hard-pressed. We need only look at the news. We need only look around us at the state of mental health, that one in four of us that experience a mental illness. The the fact that I saw this week that um, 450, the UCAS had seen a 450% rise in the last 10 years in the number of students disclosing mental illness. My time at LSD was one of the happiest of my life. But it was also the time of my life that I had to come to terms with the fact that unless God chose an instant healing, this was going to be a chronic thing. That it could be managed, but not necessarily eliminated. And I was scared. I was so scared and homesick in the first week, in fact, that I packed my bags and ran away um, down the M25, far too fast, sorry, um, and um, had to be called by the vice principal at the time to be like, we really think you should come back, it's only day two. (laughs) I wish I was joking. Um, But I did. I did come back and now they can't get me to leave. We are hard-pressed like the pottery in the kiln. But we are not crushed because Jesus himself was crushed for us. And we carry his suffering and his victory in us. We are perplexed because the world doesn't make sense. 
Sometimes our faith doesn't make sense. Actually, quite a lot of the time, our faith doesn't make sense. If I've learned nothing over the last year, anything over the last years, is that faith cannot be held without mystery. But we're not left in the despair of our questions. Because Jesus doesn't push them away. He meets us in them through the Spirit. We are struck down personally and communally until sometimes we can bear it no longer. But we are not destroyed beyond repair. That's the story of our faith that we carry, isn't it? It's the story that since we left Eden, there will be trouble and pain that is unbearable. In exile, in destruction, in rebuilding, in finding and losing home again and again, until we are one day called home. It's the story of Christ born, Christ crucified, Christ risen and ascended to glory, still bearing the scars of his suffering, sending the spirit to be our comfort and friend until he one day returns and every sad story is untrue. The passage says it, death is at work within us and sometimes it's inescapable. But life, too, is inescapable. Because Jesus took death and suffering to the grave and then rose again. And one of my very favourite stories in Scripture is found in Luke 24. It's when Jesus, you know, he's just resurrected from the dead. And if that had happened to me, I can imagine there would be a lot of things I'd want to do, perhaps. But what does Jesus do? He chooses to walk with a couple of strangers who are heartbroken. They're some of the saddest words that Cleopas says. We had hoped. We'd hoped the medication would work. We'd hoped the marriage could be saved. We'd hoped she'd keep her job. We hoped they'd make it. And into their hopelessness, Jesus not only speaks, but listens. Jesus listens to them talk about all the stuff that's actually happened to him. And then he takes them on a journey through everything the scriptures have said about them. And they still don't recognise him. In fact, they don't recognise him until he breaks bread with them. Perhaps they see the scars on his palms. Perhaps it's like some translations talk about that scales fell from their eyes. Perhaps it's that he broke bread in the way that he had broken bread with his disciples the night before he died. Whatever the reason, it speaks to Jesus' gentleness and care. That's what his priority was comforting the heartbroken, sharing himself and bearing his scars. And sharing our stories of brokenness and God's grace is not something we all need to do to everyone we meet. It's not something we always need to do from a pulpit. But neither do we need to hide behind fake smiles and I'm fine. 
We need to find communities that allow us to be honest. Communities that allow us to say, this really hurts. And I don't know where God is in it. Can you help me see him? That's what we want to see. We want to see, actually, that people, you know, we often hear in churches people prayed about, and, and we want to keep doing that. I, you know, don't get me wrong. We want to hear about every broken leg. We want to lift people's pain up, whatever it looks like. But I think we need to be a bit more specific sometimes. I think we need to name the unnameable. We need to say, Lord God, will you break in? Will you help a failing mental health system be resourced? Mm -hmm. Will you break the stigma that means people don't ask for help? Will you comfort those who feel like they're on their last hope? Our brokenness, our scars, our, our stories of heartbreak and hopelessness are transformed by the gospel. The pain doesn't always cease. Sometimes there's not a cure, but in it there is grace. And Jesus' kindness and love fill every broken place. And somehow, even though we may feel all we have is nothing, when it's filled with Jesus' love, it is more beautiful than the wholeness perhaps we once had. Some 14 years ago, I, I definitely would not have imagined that I would stand here and talk about the scars that I was still trying to come to terms with. The ones I was so ashamed of and so afraid of. But that is the mystery and grace of God, that he takes our brokenness and shows us beauty. That he shines through the treasure, as treasure in jars of clay. The resurrection was a miracle enough. He didn't need to keep his scars. But I believe he did it for our sake. To show us that there is not one scar that we have that disqualifies us from the gospel of Christ Jesus. From his kingdom and the glory that is to come. And if you hear nothing else this morning, I pray that you hear this. That there is not one thing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Not one scar, not one ache, not one sin. Because Jesus came to us. And there is nothing that can exclude us from God's plan. Because Jesus' scars remained and his power is made perfect in our weakness. Thank you for listening to the London School of Theology podcast. To find out more about LST and our courses, please visit our website.